This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, October 7th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The American way of healthcare regulation gave us some of the most costly missteps in response to this pandemic. Cato Institute senior fellow Jeff Singer in his new essay for Cato's Pandemics and Policy series details some of the regulations that should be scrapped now to respond to the pandemic and should stay gone for the sake of innovation going forward. If we take the existing regulatory structure uh, with respect to healthcare, what regulations, what pieces of that structure gave us some of the most costly mistakes in responding to this pandemic? Well, of course, there's a lot of FDA regulatory structure that uh, delayed getting testing out to the public uh, because for all intents and purposes, the uh, FDA granted a monopoly to the CDC to develop a test and and basically sent the, the message to any of the private sector uh, labs that uh, the CDC is on this. And then, of course, the CDC had a faulty test, and that basically lost a month in getting testing out there. And then hurriedly, the FDA started relaxing uh, requirements to uh, allow uh, tests to get out there so that uh, we could play catch up. And by by late March, uh, states and private sector labs were starting to get t- tests out independent of the CDC. That was one big one. But another uh, major one uh, that uh, remains an obstacle to moving uh, healthcare practitioners around to the country to places where they're needed are state-based, which are state-based licensing laws. Um, this was uh, We learned this lesson very acutely with this pandemic. And because of healthcare licensing laws, healthcare practitioners are not allowed to practice in a state in which they're not licensed. So many governors uh, suspended their licensing laws, at least for the duration of the pandemic, to allow uh, doctors, nurses, other healthcare practitioners who are licensed in other states to come into their state and help take care of uh, the overload of patients that were flooding their hospitals and emergency rooms. Um, and uh, they also relaxed a lot of scope of practice laws to allow healthcare practitioners, uh, for example, who have who are actually trained to do more, but licensing laws restrict what they can do, to allow them to practice to the full extent of their training to help get more healthcare out to people. Also, state-based licensing laws have inhibited the development of telemedicine, and we learned with as we're all restricted in our movement, we've learned how valuable telemedicine can be these last several months. It's interesting that uh, the healthcare sector has uh, lagged way behind other sectors in utilizing a lot of digital technology. Telemedicine's not not really new. It's been around for a long time, but it's never had a chance to develop because states require uh, the practice of telehealth to only be within by, by practitioners licensed within their own state on their patients. So for example, I practice in Arizona, I'm licensed in Arizona. Under ordinary circumstances, I could deliver telehealth services to a patient, but I can only do it to a patient within my own state. Uh, and, and, a, and a doctor from another state can't develop deliver telehealth services to a patient in my state. So most states, not all, but many governors or uh, legislators, uh, suspended these rules, at least for the duration of the pandemic, so that people in dire need of healthcare can get it. But unfortunately, 
in almost every instance, these things are going to go back to the way they were as soon as this crisis passes. And so we should take a lesson from this. We should we shouldn't wait for another crisis to develop to do this again. We should. I mean, it, it, the, by suspending these rules, the governors and policymakers have tacitly recognized that healthcare licensing laws are obstacles to the free movement of healthcare and to the development of of innovations in healthcare. And uh, so they should use this lesson. They should use this as, as a, a learning experience. And uh, and make these uh, suspensions permanent. In fact, they should expand on these ex- suspensions and revamp uh, licensing practices. Now, one of the things that you note that uh, states should do is consider replacing licensure with certification. What does that mean? Well, actually, uh, uh, we Cato came out with a paper by uh, Shirley Svorny and Michael Cannon on this a little over a month ago, and. Uh, uh, what people don't seem to understand is that having a license really doesn't provide them with a degree of uh, protection and due diligence that they think it does. For example, uh, any any doctor, when a doctor gets a license to practice medicine in, in their state, and this is nationwide, they could practice anything they want to as a doctor. So, for example, even though I've been a surgeon for over 35 years, I personally truly have developed a, an interest in addiction medicine and psychiatry working on those policy issues. And I've read a lot about it. There's nothing that prevents me in Arizona or if I was licensed in any other state from suddenly deciding, you know what, I think I'm going to start becoming an addiction specialist and hang up a, a, a shingle on my office and say, you know, Jeffrey Singer, MD, addiction medicine. And I could do that. Uh, I have a license to practice medicine, and that's part of medicine. Now, what protects the public is the private sector's credentialing system. So, for example, if I tried to get privileges at a at a hospital or some sort of you know uh, healthcare center to practice addiction medicine, the first thing they'll ask me is, "So, where did you do your training in addiction medicine? Do you, have you been certified by the American uh, Board of Addiction Medicine? Uh, th- those kind of things." And uh, if I tried to get on a panel of a health plan so that I could be one of their doctors, that's what they're going to do too. So actually what protects people are third-party certification and credentialing organizations. Um, so what the, a, a, a smarter way to handle this is to allow third-party credentialing and certification organizations, which are relatively insulated from politics, to just to do their job and any and, and states should just recognize that if you're credentialed by these third-party certification organizations, then then you're safe to practice. We also have medical malpractice laws that also do their own credentialing. In fact, in fact, uh, you know, if a doctor has doesn't doesn't practice according to good standards, they could either be denied malpractice insurance coverage, or the the malpractice insurance carrier could raise their rates on them. Uh, malpractice insurance companies do a great deal of uh, of uh, time educating their policyholders on ways to decrease risk of getting a malpractice suit because, of course, they got a vested interest in doing that. When I apply for malpractice insurance, they actually ask me, so what kind of operations will you do? Or what kind of operations will you not do? And then based upon my experience in, in those procedures, and also the degree of risk in those procedures, that's how they determine what my premium is going to be. And they'll even say something like, uh, uh, if you uh, agree not to practice 
bariatric surgery, we can give you a 10% rate reduction. So there, there are, most people are unaware that actually out there in the private sector, that's where all of the due diligence is being done. The licensing is just a cursory. It just checks to make sure I graduated a medical school and, you know, haven't, haven't been convicted of a felony and that kind of thing. But once I get the license, as far as the state's concerned, I can do anything I want. So uh, it, it, if we eliminated licensing and replaced it with allowing the third-party sector, the third-party uh, certification and credentialing uh, apparatus to do its job, we could th- therefore allow for much more uh, freedom of movement of healthcare practitioners to where they're needed. But not only that, allow more, a lot more innovation. For example, when we have licensing, then every, the, the scope of practice of the licensed healthcare practitioner is always in the hands of the, um, the legislature. So uh, you have situations where in some states, nurse practitioners can practice independent of physicians. That's the case in my state. And they could uh, go to uh, and provide really good primary care services to people. But in other states, they're not allowed to practice independent of physicians. They have to have sort of a, almost an employment arrangement with a physician. And of course, the physicians lobby the legislature who are responsible for what the scope of licensing is and say, uh, it's not safe. We physicians say it's not safe to allow nurse practitioners to practice primary care. You must have them under the supervision of a physician. And she got all that kind of you know, special interest pleading going on by various healthcare practitioners trying to, they're, they're turf battles. When, when you take the politics out of it by getting licensing out of it, then the certification agencies make the decision. So for example, in my practice, we employ a physician assistant. He's been with us about 15 years and he is so good in assisting us in surgery and, uh, that I have no doubt if he was interested he could practice uh, general surgery, not uh, complex, sophisticated, unusual cases, but everyday cases like appendectomies and hernia repairs and that kind of thing. Uh, of course, he's not allowed to uh, because of, of state licensing law. But if we had certification agencies, certification agencies would have a vested interest in saying, well, you know, we could, we could have different pathways and different categories of certification. So we might be able to certify that physician assistant to perform surgeries up to a certain level. And if you're certified, then suddenly we're no longer locking people into these little silos that the licensing laws do. And we're also taking the politics out of it. We're basically making it uh, based upon merit. You mentioned here that uh, among the recommendations you have that Congress should define what's known as the locus of care as the state in which a practitioner is located as, a per, as opposed to where a consumer resides. Why does that matter? I assume that's, that, that's uh, with respect to telemedicine. You know, why does Congress have this role of, of making this kind of determination to begin with? Uh, yeah, it's mainly with respect to telemedicine. Um, uh, under Congress's authority, uh, under Article One of the Constitution, the, the, the authority that, to regulate commerce between the states, to make commerce regular, um, I believe it has the authority to define the locus of care as the state in which the practitioner is licensed, as opposed to the, the state in which the consumer resides. For example, um, as a patient, I could, if I wanted to, I could take a, a ride over to my neighboring state of California to see this specialist who's got a very uh, 
renowned special specialist for the problem I have that may be very unique. Uh, I spend time with him. Uh, I go back home to, to Arizona. The doctor wants to see me again in about three months for just a brief follow-up visit. Um, because that doctor's not licensed in Arizona, we can't do that by telemedicine. I have to go back in my car or the airport and go back to California to see him for what might be a 10-minute visit. Uh, why is that the case? If, I, if we're already seeing each other, why can't he come to me by a tel via telemedicine? But it's not just restricted to telemedicine. I argue in my, in my chapter that you could argue that uh, the same uh, would apply. There's an analogous situations, for example, a physician who's not establishing a, a permanent practice in, in, in our state, but could be just over the border uh, in a neighboring state and wants to deliver short-term care across the border. Let's say, particularly, in, you're talking about remote rural areas. This is very important. The doctor, if he wanted to you know, drive across the state line to make a house call to you to take care of you and then go back to where, where that doctor's practicing. Uh, again, that doctor would have to get a license. Well, that's analogous to telemedicine. Another thing that's analogous to telemedicine is, for example, uh, you have short-term stents. There, there's a, a, a thing in, in medicine called locum tenens, which means fill-in. And uh, so they're sort of like agencies, like temporary agencies. But, and this is particularly in, in rural underserved areas where Doctors uh, may come like for a month, spend a stint there providing primary care services to a remote rural community, and then go to another place in another part of the country for a month and just kind of go. That, that, that's what they do. Uh, they, they, that's how they make, make a living as a practitioner. Uh, it tracks certain people who want to travel, um, perhaps doctors who uh, have very experienced, want to give up their private practice and just want to do something different. Well, they have to get licenses in all of these states, and they're not setting up a, a, a formal established practice because states, of course, have the the right under our system. They have the police power to to decide if they want to license businesses or practices within their own state's borders. But you're talking about things where these are not within their own state's borders per se. These are people kind of coming in, doing a short term in person uh, delivery of a service, and then moving on. And so I think you could make a strong argument constitutionally that using the Commerce Authority, uh, Congress can say that the locus of care is wherever that particular health care provider is licensed. To the extent states are, one, concerned about the quality of the health care professionals operating within their state and have a hard time uh, overcoming certain interest groups' interests. Uh, is reciprocity something that uh, states already do in some cases? Yeah, that that's a sort of an easy fix right now. Before we get to the more comprehensive uh, reform overhaul that I was talking about earlier, so already a handful of states, it started with Arizona in 2019, passed laws saying that if you have a license in good standing in another state, then we'll grant you. We'll just recognize that license in our state and uh, providing you are coming to our state to establish a practice in our state, not just a medical practice. Actually, in these states, it's any occupational license. If you're going to open up a location, a permanent location in our state, we'll just recognize the license you have in the other state. Arizona started that in 2019. Uh, a handful of states have followed suit, including Pennsylvania, Missouri, uh, I think more recently, Utah, Montana. 
So that's all states should do that. The, the, the only caveat is they require you to open up a, a permanent domicile in the, in the state. And as I said earlier, what they really ideally should do is say, if you've got a, a license in another state, then uh, you don't have to have a permanent domicile. You could just use it in our state. Sort of like when you drive through a state with your driver's license that's been issued in another state. Now, interestingly, most states already do this when it comes to, to pharmacies and prescription drugs. So in, mo- in many states, if not the great majority, doctors can call in prescriptions to pharmacies in other parts of the country in states in which they're not licensed. And the pharmacists under their state law, if they make the determination that that Healthcare that that healthcare practitioner calling in the prescription is it, it has a good faith relationship with the patient for whom the prescription is being called in. They issue it, so we see that happen all the time. Also, uh, you know, you could have a patient of yours that's on vacation in another part of the country, and their prescription needs a refill, and so states allow the doctor from the other side of the country to call in a refill to the pharmacy uh, for that patient. So they allow the pharmacist to make a good a determination that, yes, this, this doctor has a relationship with this patient. I'm going to fill a prescription. So we already kind of have that when it comes to, to prescriptions. We should just have that when it comes to all of healthcare. Dr. Jeff Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.